Hey, this is Sully from the band Theft to the Gallows, REB Records, and the REB Records Artist Space, the world's first micro-recording studio for struggling songwriters, musicians, and engineers so they can get to work for a whopping 10 bucks an hour. There's no reason not to create. And this is my What the Punk podcast.
back. Hey, what's going on? Hey, buddy. Thanks for making the time to talk today. Absolutely. Thank you. So crazy times, strange times. You obviously just got finished doing so some, some uh, online school stuff. Oh, very fun. Yeah. So I want to get right into it. And the reason I am speaking with you, and I think that actually based on these these times, these quarantine times, these viral times, um, you are a 20-year-old college student at Loyola University in Chicago. Is that correct? Just turned 21, yeah. Happy birthday. Just turned 21. All right. Um, and I met you at the – and you work part-time uh, at the tennis club where I also teach. And in passing one day, I'd asked you a little bit about, you know, what you were studying and what you were doing. And I believe you told me you do um, uh, political science, correct? Yeah, that's right. Political science. And then I've studied a little economics in the liberal arts school. Got it. And we ended up getting on this conversation that you had interned at a uh, lobby, a lobby firm. Uh, was it last summer? It was last semester. So fall semester of 2019 in uh, Washington, D.C. at a government relations firm called Venn Strategies. Bipartisan lobbying firm. Bipartisan. Got it. Um, so what does this have to do with my What the Punk podcast and what the hell does a lobby firm <laughs> and a 20-year-old, you know, economic, political science guy? Um, what does it have to do with punk music? And I want to tie this into my for my listeners, and I think this will give you also a handle of why I wanted to speak with you. The folk movement from the 1950s and from Hootenannies was about um, freedom for people, right? It was a civil rights movement. And then we went from the late 50s, early 60s into like a freak folk movement, which was where, which was a backlash against folk music in the 50s becoming too serious and too politically and too socially minded. So these bands like, um, the Fugs, who I've talked about in previous podcasts, or David Peel. These are all East Side New York City bands and artists that became, it was more about a, a hippie culture uh, at that point in expressing yourself. And that eventually led into the punk movement of the 70s, which then moved forward into uh, 80s music and then hardcore punk and then moving forward. So there seems to always be something underlying socially uh, that's happening uh, socially, economically, politically that's driving some musical force. We're in this odd time, though, because we're so isolated and there's so much content. And I've just spoke with this uh, in my our earlier podcast, um, previous episode, that I don't know if that can happen again. And what's alarming is that we have something that is so global far reaching globally right now that maybe I was wrong. Is there a scene that could emerge a music scene that will get people to wake up and see what's happening to kind of pull back the curtain again, as we did in the seventies with the Vietnam war. Um, you know, sure. these musical movements were very pivotal in the youth culture and at least shaping right. 
people's opinions and how they they move forward. And you seem like a guy that that has many thoughts. So I don't know. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on anything I just said, but that's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about what is actually yeah, happening in a lobby firm politically and how does that pertain to actually what's happening right now with COVID-19 and how much are we being told? How much are we not being told? Is this being blown out of proportion? Is this mind control? Is this the ultimate mind control experiment to see, can we get everybody to fall on board through social media? You know, I I don't think it's, go ahead. Sorry. Well, just a, a couple of things, just starting on your, on the music train. Um, the folk music tradition of like labor rights activism is so strong. You get a lot of like, um, you know, just a lot of banjo players, you know, in the mines. Like that's where my family comes from. It was just, it was miners in rural Kentucky and, you know, West Virginia. And you get a, a rich musical tradition out of that. Like Dolly Parton comes out of that. You get some, um, just some, some great music. Like, I don't know. And then you have artists like Woody Guthrie, singing some really radical shit that, I mean, is, is radicalizing to people now. Like he was singing about, you know, United Fruit Company and, you know, breaking, breaking up um, strikes basically a hundred fucking years ago. Sorry, can I cuss on here? You can do whatever you want to do. It's called What the Punk. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and I'll just say that we talk about um, kind of this isolation and this, um, I don't know, social sorting a lot in, in my poli-sci classes in, con- in, the, in the political context where we talk about um, partis- partisanship and polarization at an all-time high. And part of the cause of that is like we're all getting our news, right, from news sources that we like, and that ends up distorting kind of the political landscape. And I think the same can be said, I don't want to... Um, extrapolate too much but i think the same can be said for like the spotify and the streaming revolution and music where there's just a there's less common space i think um i don't know it just seems like we're we're maybe picking what we want to hear more so i don't want to say that it's like lost that radical power to bring everybody together across the spectrum but if you want to look for poignant political music you know, good, uh, critical shit. I would, I mean, I would honestly look at hip hop. So why do you say that? What is it about hip hop that's, that's more revealing than any other art form right now? I mean, I, I'm not the, not the hip hop expert by any means, but I do think that a lot of the, um, the war on drugs, can be viewed through a hip hop lens. And that might be a much more revealing way to look at the war on drugs than the official take, right? Mass incarceration has hit, you know, capitalism has exploited those communities most, um, I don't know, acutely. So they, they have their finger on the pulse, just they're kind of situated. uh, I don't know that, that I feel like that, that art form is just situated culturally. Um, do you think that art form is where, being believed yeah, now, though? Good, do, uh, do you think that that by the younger uh, generation, absolutely? Okay, because yeah. in the remember, I'm I'm way older than you, so like I grew up in the yeah um, the early phases of hip hop, where 
I think people are like, oh, that's just black people complaining that they're getting a raw deal, that that's not really going on, that the powers that be that wouldn't do that. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of stereotypes that could go with that. And I think that people, and I personally actually believe that, I think that you're correct on that. I agree with it 100%. I think black people have been given the short end of the stick over and over again, but yet they keep coming up, and I've said earlier in other podcasts, how they've invented more musical art forms than any other culture on the, on the planet. So thank you, black people, right? But if you're constantly beginning, getting the short end of the stick, but only your race or culture knows it, that would actually galvanize your, your people, right? And they will give you a strong sense of identity. And I feel like I agree with you, but do you, so you're saying right now that you think that young people are fully on board with this, that, that yes, they feel. Well, I think that, I think that our generation, um, well, I don't know. I'm 20. So it's kind of a weird, like, no, you're, you're 21. You're 21. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm a zoomer or if I'm, I don't think I'm a millennial technically, whatever. But, um, if you look at like, kind of the generations that, that, that have grown up with iPhones in their hands, right? This is the most radical generation, not even like liberal, but like on economic policy, on taxation, on foreign policy, on race relations, on gender issues and LGBT. I mean, radic- a radical break from even millennials, even, you know, Gen Xers. I'm not talking boomers here. My generation and the kids who are in high school now, um, yeah, maybe it's the internet. I don't know what it is, but they are, I think, actually different. And different in a way that they're more accepting as far as they under, they, they want to give everybody this kind of whatever floats your boat mentality. You have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to. Yeah, no, I think it is. It, it, I mean, it's a little bit more libertine, I guess. We don't, I don't know. We just don't, we don't care about kind of the whatever Christian fundamentalist hangups or some of the, I don't know, like getting married and having kids in a white picket fence isn't happening. Not because millennials are like, or young people, quote unquote, are like different, different constitutionally. Those things aren't happening because of outside political forces. So we're being radicalized. I think so maybe I, I think that I think that there are like pressures from the financial crisis from you know the student debt crisis and I think those things in conjunction with the internet and like just liberal tolerant attitudes kind of working together there that's an interesting point so what I'm getting from you on saying that is what's the point if I'm going to work my my job and save up and get married and have a house for the bubble to burst and then lose my house. What's the point in doing all these things if all of a sudden now I can't go outside because I have to be quarantined for the next six months? <laughs> is, is that how, what, yeah. like almost this thing of like, then what's the point if X, Y, and Z can happen? And if I'm not in control of it, that there's these outside forces, how can I, is exactly. it, why would we get married? Why would I? And, and I think that for, an, an upper class, rich white boy like myself, when you see 
those kind of promises that were always a lock for white boys like myself in the past. When you see those systems start to break down, like the housing market and the financial market, just, you know, overheat and pop and, you know, destroy the world economy overnight, you start to catch on and realize that those, <laughs> those promises, obviously, that you took for granted were not available to everyone, right? So the financial crash hurt, uh, you know, communities of color worst, and that was a legacy of redlining. And so it just, when those things happen, when, when, when capitalism, you know, wounds itself like that, it kind of exposes whatever, the underlying contradictions, whatever you want to call them. So do you think it put a, so there's two things I want to talk about real quick. Can you explain redlining for me a second? I'm not, I'm never the smartest guy in the room. So can you explain that, what you mean that by the, the legacy of redlining? Yeah, redlining was basically a way that um, the state through banks denied housing credit to communities of color, especially black communities in the inner city. So it was a way of um, essentially trapping them in communities that were systematically starved off from good credit. And that led to a lot of blight and white flight, which, you know, once you have the affluent white tax base abandon the you know inner city, you get all kinds of like knock-on, um, trickle-down blight effects. Um, you know, that's just, I mean, Chicago, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country. A lot of the most segregated cities in the country are still in the North and that's a legacy of basically not de jure segregation by law, but de facto segregation by, you know, other social forces and other, you know, other systems. And I think that was, so then what you're saying is that that was, became really evident when the housing crisis happened and the bubble burst that all these white people were like, wait a minute, I'm not immune to this either anymore. So when it, the, when the white people weren't being affected by it, it was like, Hey, that's cool. Or maybe we just look the other way. And because, yeah, because we were benefiting more of these issues coming that like, like COVID, like you said, has started to impact people. You know, it's, they're trying to lock us all down. So when there are more of these, you know, whatever, these overreaches or these crises that start to impact all of us. It's just a build or it's a, it's a good opportunity to build um, solidarity or, you know, a social conscience, whatever you want to call it. is like the magic the magic's like a spell my brothers went to heaven the police going to yell they're going to hello operator emergency hotline if i say that i can't breathe will i become a child line up to see the movie line up to see the act the officers are scheming to
mention misery into angel wings and all he wanna do is be still and cut bread never know the dead how they whisper forgive me everything is relative politicize the evidence i heard a politician reiterate all the messages and all he wanna do is feed family be famous never know the poor how they scream out redeem me everything is casualty a song i heard the bullets sing i know a couple babies gonna see him fly tonight wish he wasn't magic all he want to do is be a passage in the book titled america the savage symphony and symphony when everything was meant to be piano manager my boy just invented the song for me and all i want to do is find love and be happy and all i want to do is find love i'm very black i'm I think one of the upsides for me for COVID-19, and I think there are actually many upsides, one is when people complain about the 1%. And this is a good example of whether you have a million dollars or a billion dollars or, like me, no dollars, we're all in the exact same boat. And if you hole up in your mansion and you have all your money, but the other 99% of the population goes south and gets infected, all they need to do is sneeze on you and you're screwed, right? So if if this isn't a message to the haves, and I don't like doing that either because I'm I'm actually fully, I don't believe in making excuses of why people don't have money or I work very hard. And I think that anybody in this country, even with limitations, even when you're being redlined, there's a way out if you are smart enough and you have the energy. So I don't like to use that as an excuse. But that being said, I think that this is a message for those that are like, yeah, 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 th- th- that has nothing to do with me. Well, actually, if globally everybody gets something that can hurt you, you need to take care of everybody. You have to make sure that there are laws in place that gives everybody a fair shake. And I think that, right. And I feel like that this is one of those examples of, listen, you're not protected. The thing that actually is going to protect you is not your nice car or your fancy trips. It's, you know, it's being a vegetarian for all. It's what? It's Medicare for all. (laughs) It's that's how you, that's how you prevent a pandemic from, you know, killing a bunch of people is you, you know, you treat, you treat poor people with the same medical care <laughs> that you would treat a rich person because you're only as safe as the most vulnerable. I mean, that's always been true, but you're right. It does expose, you know, it, it, that the crisis kind of exposes that, I hope. But now you sound like a socialist by saying that. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Let the cat out of the bag. Here we are. So here we go now, right? So we are... It sounds like a, like, and we've been sold a bill of goods also that socialism aspects of communism are horrible, 
right, that the end all be all is our, our, is democracy. And I remember having a professor that said, if you actually broke down what democracy is, it stands for crazy government. And which I thought was hilarious, but you know, there, there's no perfect system. So by having a Medicare for everybody getting the same health care, everybody is going to be better off in the long run. Up, there's upfront costs that obviously the people balk at because there's other things going on where money is misspent, um, funds are misappropriated towards um, pet projects for politicians and their friends, right? Yeah. Um, and I can see being apprehensive of you know handing over your entire medical system to the government, right? That, that, that doesn't sound good to me. Like, don't get me wrong, but you know, what sounds infinitely worse letting private insurance corporations make loads of money off of the suffering of my fellow Americans. You know what I mean? Like those are that, that I don't know if that makes me a socialist, but <laughs> well, I think it makes you a humanitarian. I've been able to talk politics um and he's super liberal and that's where i got it from so i owe him a lot but uh he and i couldn't we couldn't come to an agreement um on this on the bernie sanders uh cuba comments issue and i thought it was fine and he thought it was like a disaster and i was just wondering if you could maybe offer me any perspective as to like why why that legacy of socialism is so scary to Americans or they, 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 you know, my dad's generation seems to really not like Bernie Sanders foreign policy record. And I was just wondering if you could say anything about that. Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right. And we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear. You want I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. So you're going to find this probably odd, but I'm not a huge Bernie Sanders fan. And... So a lot of things, if you look at it, and I've done some research on him, if, if you look at everything that he's done or he talks about doing, and even some of his track record, I don't disagree with it. But I do believe, I do believe in bipartisanship. And I don't think that somebody like Bernie being in office at the highest levels will bring that. I think it will just shut things down. You have a lot of people with firm beliefs and, you know, accepting – transsexuals is really hard for some people, you know, and I understand. And, but that's a reflection on their own fear, right? We're back to the fear thing. Um, I think we tend to talk about, and so like when your dad and I grew up, my dad would call, say things to me as a joke, right? Oh, you're a, you're a, you're a commie punk spy. Don't act like that. 
and I'm a, I'm a commie punk spy. Wow, that's a good name for a band, right? But he's but he was using commie, communist, anybody from Russia. I mean, this old lady that right from who's from Russia. He's basically like, if you hear that enough, you start thinking, well, all Russians are bad, right? You're just thinking like, all oh, they they're they all tow the party line, versus hey. They might be thrown into the gulag if they say anything against the government, right? We're talking these like China's bad, China's bad. We're talking about government officials that are that are in place who are following out a leader's rules. So yeah. what? So now we got to go to. I don't know if this is making sense. Just go with me on this. So now you're talking something like like Cuba. Now I just had a student that visited Cuba a few months ago. And she got back and she said, oh, it's so sad. They, it's like they live in the dark ages. They have all these old cars. They have, um, you know, they don't have the latest technology and they have internet at certain points, but then it goes out. Things are really bad. And I was thinking like, but is that really bad? They're, um, Cubans are extremely resourceful. They were key, they kept cars running for seventy years, eighty years on old parts, refurbishing things. There's also this yes, it's like a time work warp, but is that necessarily a bad thing? Is well, whose fault is the time warp? I mean, for Christ's sake, they were cut off from the world. It was the most. That's like a siege. They were on an island, besieged. They couldn't get any shit on their island for 50 years after the, the missile crisis, right? So, I mean, the U.S. embargoed them. Is that common? I mean, is that... Well, they, well hold on. Now, this... I mean, is this fault or was that the... Okay, no, hold on. I'm going to cut you off. The, the decisions of a bad leader. Correct. No, hold on. Ready? But now, hold the thought for a second, okay? I'll just hold the Cuba thought for a second. On Friday, President Trump just was asked on his, the last, um, address he gave, it's talking about all, all the, um, ventilators that are going out. And then it's one of the reporters that asked, Hey, how are we doing with China and the, and the tariffs? Are we making a lot of money from those? He goes, Oh yeah, we're making, we're making millions and millions in, in tariffs against China, uh, every time we get something. And, yeah. but that's not true. What actually, and if you go through, uh, news now, where they're a debunking uh, site where they can go through and as the president's talking, they'll say, well, actually, here's what's really happening. The tariffs are, are being passed along to American companies who then pass along to the, to the American consumer who pays more money to cover those tariffs. So all we're doing is taking our money. Not We're not getting money from China, right? We're, we're paying ourselves. No, we're paying more for our own good. Correct. Yeah. So, but here's the president well, saying, right, right, but he, so here's the president saying, oh yeah, we're making these monies from all these tariffs. China's passing along to the country, are these companies, these companies are passing along to, the American companies are passing along to us. So now we're going to talk about what's happening, happening. It's the same thing is happening everywhere. These are all distortions of information. And I think that I don't want to speak in black and white terms of like, I agree with Bernie Sanders. I disagree. There, it's, it's too convoluted, too many things. And it's always been this way, right? Politics are complicated. Um, you know, w whether you like him or not, you know, Bill Clinton, um, you, you can go on his sexcapade thing or you can go on his, you know, economic policies or you can go with his, um, 
the way he could talk to other p- political leaders and other presidents and get things to move a little bit. So there's there's never going to be a perfect person. You know, we could, we could argue that Obama was a great president, but then under his drone strikes, he killed more people than other presidents. You know, we can we can find something about everybody that's not perfect because we're not. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point, especially about electoral democracy or, you know, our whatever, our Republican system where we elect people to represent us. Like, Donald Trump was the candidate of the religious right, the evangelical fundamentalist Christian right. That doesn't make any sense. You know, they they didn't vote for him because he was an a, a perfect avatar of their belief. They they elected him because they thought that he would be a warrior for their side, right? And so, I think that I think that that's why Bernie Sanders is so attractive to a lot of people who have become disaffected with the bipartisan approach. And I I mean I would count myself as someone who doesn't count bipartisanship as a positive necessarily, like in and of itself. But if somebody like Bernie gets in, and let's say we actually all agree with a lot of his policies, and, but will they get through? And then once they get through, will they be undone in four, eight years? You know, and I think that's the thing that makes me really sad that, that you know, I was for national yeah. health care. Totally for it. I think everybody should be in this day and age. They, we have shown in other countries that when there's a national health care, there is at least a baseline of health, which is what you're saying. And, but the problem is, if as these things get dismantled, so we spend all this time building up, and then somebody comes in and it doesn't matter who brings them in, right? Whether we just keep going around and around, and we never actually move forward. So it's like two steps forward, and it literally it's two steps back. And this well, is actually, my frustration. Can I, can Go, I talk please. about? Yeah, please. Yeah, can I talk about this for a second? Because this actually brings me right to something that I got to witness in D.C. Um, we had a our, our one of our healthcare clients um, had some. It was it's a pharmaceutical company, and this past session didn't get passed, but um, it's called the Senate Drug Bill or the the Wyden. Um, uh, what's the Republicans' name? Grassley Wyden Bill. Um, and they were, it's a Senate and House bill, but I was assigned to the Senate. And they were looking to bring down the cost of prescription drugs for Americans. And basically the question is, why do Americans pay, you know, whatever, 10 times more for their pharmaceuticals than any other nation on earth, especially as we pay a higher, you know, proportion of our taxes to research and development and all these other issues. And so I had to go to these these briefings because our clients wanted to know essentially if they're like, you know, if their product was at risk of getting price, you know, a price cut. And what the Republicans want basically is just extra um, generics. So uh, a faster timeline, moving drugs from restricted where you can, you know, jack up the prices and you have a monopoly on drugs they're looking to expedite the process to get those on the shelves at much lower costs as just generics. So that's kind of the main Republican push. And then one of the wish lists on the House side from the more progressive, like uh, progressive caucus in the Democratic House, so this is like your uh, Pramila Jayapal's of the world, 
they were pushing for what's called an international price index or an IPI, which links the cost of drugs here to the cost of drugs internationally, which seems to make a lot of sense, right? Because obviously it's the same pill or the same vial of insulin, et cetera, whatever. So Canadians shouldn't get it for 10 cents on the dollar compared to us. Um, but the Republicans and some Democrats in, in the House and in the Senate are opposed to the IPI because their, their soundbite is that that would basically hamper research and development. It would make it harder for drug companies to, to research drugs, to get them on the market if they didn't know that they had a guaranteed lock on profits for the next you know, X number of years. So the bipartisan compromise was essentially just the Republican, the Republican compromise. Like that's what, that's what, well, Pelosi, well, she torpedoed the bill at the last second, but so that's kind of an example of how that bipartisanship plays out, at least in front of me. But so would the thinking be though, that the same companies would be making the generic form. So then they're double dipping. Do you see what I'm saying? No, normally I think it's a different... I think, like, most of the generic manufacturers only manufacture, like, like one generic... Or, like, they only manufacture generics, I think. And then it's up to, like, the American... Some of the, like, more blue-chip, like, American companies to do research and development. And I think, you know, there are Chinese and Indian and uh, Israeli companies doing kind of cutting-edge work. But... That's another that's another issue is the the supply chains for drugs. Like we're seeing now the supply chains for our medical system with COVID nineteen kind of collapsing. Even before that, there were, you know, serious issues and sometimes even crises where, you know, you get a a drug that's manufactured for childhood cancer, like a rare childhood cancer that gets canceled because whatever the the factory in Bangladesh closed down. So our our ability to get these drugs to Americans, even though we're paying the most in research and development, our ability to get our hands on these drugs isn't always the best because these corporations have outsourced and offshored all of the all of the production. R- r- no, absolutely. So this would be an argument, actually. Just I'll stay on this for one second on the the uh, international price index. That actually in this climate right now that we have would be an argument for it. This is, this would be right now, this, this is where this should come back and somebody should lobby for, Hey, let's get with the IPI again, because this generic thing is not going to work. We need to get everybody on the same page to keep everybody healthy. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The reason that, the reason that that doesn't get lobbied for in DC very hard is because at these panel discussions and all of these conference rooms where these decisions are made and where the reporting is being done, it's, you know, maybe you get your congressman, maybe a senator. And then the other people up there on the dais are often um, investors in big pharma or, you know, former federal policy people. Like I listened to some people from the Obama administration and then oftentimes you would get like maybe one representative from the White House or from the administration. And they would all just sit up there 
and kind of say, oh, we need to tinker with this. Oh, we need to tinker with that. Oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. But we can compromise. And they all played nice up on that stage. And you realize eventually that there's no one representing, you know, Americans, every like real people up on that stage who need these drugs, who can't afford these drugs, right? Those people are completely unrepresented in these discussions. It's all people who stand to personally gain from the status quo. It's really kind of depressing. And if you happen to fall into the product line that they're trying to push, you're lucky, basically, right? That like so if you happen to need the drug that they think is gonna be making them more money, then that's what they're gonna go with and you just got lucky. Everybody else is just SOL. Well, yeah, I mean the idea that a for-profit healthcare system uh, distributes our medical resources best is, I mean, that's, that's crazy talk. How many, how many times has the, I don't know, I don't know. It's just the research and development that's being done isn't on like cures for common ailments and maladies. They're only interested in researching cures for chronic drugs that they can sell to you to take every day, right, for, for I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, again, this isn't exactly my field, but... No, no, I get, I, I get what you're aren't saying, aren't interested though. in right. making us all happier. They're interested in selling pills, right? Well, right. It's the, it's the new cocaine. It's the new heroin. Right. Absolutely. They're going to keep you it's on so these scary. things and they want you to, and my dad was on before he died. He was on seven kinds of pills for 20 years. Imagine that. Right. So here's this, you know, my dad died at 83. So from basically, let's say 70 to 83, he was just popping seven to eight pills a day and needed to re-up those every few weeks. How much money is that? Now multiply that by a million people. That, that's, that's insane. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it. Right. So we're not, there's not, so what I'm hearing is that you're not feeling like there's this thing, hey guys, there's this, there's this issue out there. We really, really need to help people that we could cure this thing. It's basically, what can we do to get people hooked on something and keep them hooked on it that will give them nominal help over a long period of time where they become basically indebted to our product, which is the exact same thing as any other product at the supermarket. Yeah. I mean, I think I, from, from the drug manufacturer's perspective, I think that's pretty much a hundred percent, maybe not all of them. Like, you know, you're going to have people come in and defend them saying, Oh, they make this cancer drug that saved my kid's life. And of course they, of course they do, but they're not, I don't know. I, I, I can't. It, it doesn't mean we should have to pay more than every other country on earth. It doesn't mean that we should have an opioid epidemic that is silently wiping out, you know, thousands of Americans, just snuffing them out without any accountability. There's no, it, there's, there's no oversight or accountability for these companies who essentially boil down to being white drug dealers, white cartels. I like no that. Justice. No, I know, I, and I. It's funny as I'm, I'm spacing to say white cartels, and that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Um, can you do me a favor? Can we go through the lobby process? Because this is one of the things when we were speaking a few months ago about it. I was, 
I was floored in my own naivete, thinking like, oh, they can't, it can't be like that. And oh, it's horrid. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's, can we just go through the process of like, can you tell me what you guys worked on or? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, one of my bosses asked me to do some research for DeVita, which is a dialysis, like an in, in office or like inpatient dialysis company. Um, that gets a lot of federal funding because there are millions of Americans with end stage renal disease, which is like basically terminal kidney failure, I think. I don't know. But they have to go on dialysis. Like this is a big, big billions and billions of dollar industry. Um, so basically, DeVita comes to them and says, hey, I hear that the federal government in their drug pricing bill is considering funding for in-home dialysis, some experimental treatments, some newer, more cutting-edge um, treatments for end-stage renal disease. I want to make sure that my federal funding for DeVita is maintained or ideally expanded a little bit when you get a little bit more of that market share. So then, I mean, I don't know once what happens once it gets kind of chased up the the tree at my firm. But what I was doing was like, I had to go through federal contract data banks and research like how much, how much the federal government is granting to companies doing um, dialysis for like Medicare and Medicaid, essentially. And what part of that is bad, abhorrent? <laughs> like as far as what are... Can can anybody basically say, hey, I, I want to basically lobby for this? I have, right? So Avita was hired by your lobby firm to basically go to the government and say, hey, we want to work on this. How much money can you give us if we do this? Yeah, we did, didn't actually end up taking them on um, for whatever reason. But, I mean, this is just a pretty simple example of corruption or graft where you have an entrenched interest, right? The in-home or the, the inpatient dialysis companies, DeVita controls one third of the national market share. They brought home a cool $2 billion with a B dollars in profit with a P last year. So the idea that they should get to control policy, public health policy for people with fatal kidney disease, when they have an interest in an inefficient, outdated, outmoded system of treatment is pretty fucked up when those people should be, in my eyes, entitled to, you know, modern, high-quality care at a low cost, maybe even free. So would the government be open to another lobby firm coming in with, let's say, my company, Solvita, and I said, hey, I can do this better than Avita, Advita. Um, or would the, the lobby be so strong? Would there be money given to the powers that be from Advita's lobby firm that guarantees that I get the contract, that, I, that I'm actually boxed out? Does that happen? Well, if you controlled a third of the market share and I controlled a third of the market share... I think that you and I would maybe come to an agreement and we could just split up the country and 
suck blood out of you know separate parts just like and control a monopoly. But <laughs> what if I didn't control a third of the country? What what if I didn't have that kind of clout? But I was coming in with well, something. So like, Davida has a third. This other company I can't remember has another third, and the rest are like smaller. I guess like I don't know, mom and pop dialysis shops. I really don't know. But the the two main, you know, the two the two big dialysis companies are just able to basically guarantee just cement their status in the healthcare system in perpetuity because there's so much, they have so much money of our money that they're able to grease the wheels with. And when you say grease the wheels, it makes them more money. Let's just get with greasing the wheels. Who, what does that mean? What are they greasing? Well, are they, are they um, paying off people? Are they, is, is, is this campaign no, donations? No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Campaign donations, but also in Washington, there's a lot of... It really it really sometimes does come down to elbow rubbing when you have kind of a revolving door between staff in, in the House, in the Senate, and staff at these, these mercenary lobbying companies. You just end up knowing enough people there that it eventually becomes uh, your incentive becomes to just continue that pay for play. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's again, it becomes like a boys club and they just hop back and forth. Like when the Republicans go into power, they all, all the Republicans leave the lobbying firm and go work in the government. And then when the Democrats come in power, all the Democrats, you know, run out of the house like a sinking ship and go fill up the lobbying firms. It's bipartisan. They, there's, there is a, there is a, bipartisan consensus it's just not around issues that you and i agree on it's it's you know on issues of corporate advantage and they keep but they're both doing it to both sides they just keep pushing whatever in the same game both there i mean the corporations are able to donate now with impunity to both sides after citizens united Right, and that's where we get into like campaign dark money into both sides. Right, so it's basically bribery at that point. Absolutely. Well, that's where you get into like campaign uh, uh, finance reform, right? And it's why don't we go there? Why why aren't Americans? If you took that out of it, right? There's everybody has the same playing field for donations. Wouldn't that solve a lot of these issues? I mean, yeah, you should do like they do in. Europe and go with a like a publicly funded election and then you can control the campaign cycle too so you don't have these like monster two year national nightmares but that's where you but co- that, so in what? this country so again so I mean there are, citizens united is like one of the cases there are a bunch of cases which basically contested at the supreme court level whether you could spend your own money on like your own political campaign and the Supreme Court decided that you could spend your own money on your political campaign. And once they decided that, I think that was in 2005, right? Right as the McCain-Feingold Act was passing. Um, then it was basically just a matter of time before Citizens United, you know. But if you take away, and, and right, so if you take away the ability of corporations to donate 
and you keep everybody capped at a certain level and say, here you go, this is as much as you can get and as much as you can spend, it would solve mm-hmm. a lot of these lobby issues. Well, would it solve some of these lobbying issues or no? I think so. I think... Okay, I'm, hold on. I mean, Before I you, I'm, let, me, let, me, let me give the second part. Though. Hold on. Let me give the second part. So there's that. Would that solve mm-hmm. that? And then two, you would let me to believe, and again, I'm not setting you up here for a fall. I'm, just, I'm curious that basically I could come up with something. And if I had the right amount of money and clout, even if it was the worst thing possible, I could get something through with the right lobbying firm through Congress, get it passed. And there'd be like no checks or balances. So I got that. Those are the two questions. One is, do you think campaign, uh, uh, finance reform would solve some issues or, and two, is it, if you have the money, can, can you push things through with the right lobbying firm? And there are no checks and balances at the upper, at the upper echelons of, of government that would actually say, you know what, I know you're giving us a lot of money, but this really isn't the best thing for the American people. So those are my, my two thoughts. Can you kind of riff on those a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So for the campaign, the campaign finance, it kind of goes in two directions for me here, because I think that part of the issue is just like, I don't want to use too squishy of a term, but like just the sanctity of our democracy. Like it doesn't look very good when you have billionaires and very rich people and very wealthy corporations kind of obviously buying off elections all over the country. Because then when people go to the voting booths, you know, they might, they might be like, oh, well, do I even have a choice? Like, I'm just voting between these, these two, even if they're thinking that critically. Um, so I think that the campaign finance is more of like, it just makes our democracy look corrupt if you're looking at it in that way, which I don't know, maybe, maybe most people aren't. Um, but there, there are still like other kind of systemic ways that corruption would find its way into the system or would remain in the system, right? Like campaign financing is, it's part of the puzzle and it's, you know, it's particularly tragic just because it essentially turns our, our representatives into tele telemarketers. Um, But, you know, you still have like the revolving door problem to fix. Just there, there would still be ways. I, I mean, our government would still be corrupt even with, um, campaign finance. But I do think, to your second point, I, I do think that if you had enough money, you could pretty much get anything written into federal law that you wanted. Like, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I think that I gave the example of the keto diet when we were talking, which is insane that that would need any kind of federal legislation. But yet, there I was at my intern desk researching like federal land use policy and like sustainable I, I, you know, numbers on, on sustainable meat production. Um, but yeah, they, I think the, the keto diet people, I don't know what their official, official like interest group that we ended up making for them was, but we got enough signatures and enough doctors on board and enough, you know, letters from important people that we all wrote. And then just kind of sent to enough sympathetic legislatures or legislators with, you know, uh, an interest in agriculture, an interest in um, cattle ranching, whatever. Um, yeah. And if you have, I mean, it's not anything, but if there's, if there's even a little money, if there's even a little industry behind it that you could take to a congressman and say, 
oh, you can take this home and brag about creating jobs or whatever, you can pretty much get some some federal funding that we're just financing debt to borrow. Cops used to come around, you know, in my neighborhood. All right, you kids, stop having so much fun. Move along. Oh, they'd arrest me, you know, especially at night. They have a curfew, right? Niggas have to be home by 11, Negroes 12. And you'd be trying to get home, you know, doing your coup runs. They always would catch you out in front of a store or something. Because you'd be taking shortcuts, right? Cops. Put your hands up, black boy. Cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the kid, and the cop shot the cop shot the kid. I don't want to hurt nobody. We just came here to party. See a few dames, exchange some names. I'm a top shot, the kid stay in your lane. The cop shot the kid, same old same. Pour out a little liquor, champagne for pain. Slap boxing in the street. Crack the hygiene in the heat. Cop cars on the creek, doing their roundups. We just watch for the sweet. Yeah, it's hotter than July. It's the summer when niggas die. It's the summer when niggas ride. Together we'll be strong, but forever we divide. So y'all are blowing my high Type of shit that's killing my vibe White kids are brought it alive Black kids get hit with like five Get scared, you panic, you going down The disadvantages of the brown How in the hell the parents gonna bury their own kids Not the other way around Reminds me of Emmett Till Let's remind them why Cap Nils Stay tuned up and down your timeline. This fake news, people, is all lying. Money is being made when a mom cries. Won't be satisfied till we all die. Tell me who do we call to report crime? If 911 doing a drive-by, it's certain things I can't abide by. I ain't being extreme, this is my side. Talking big shit, ready to die. I know every story got two sides. Claiming he's paranoid by the black guy. Cop wanna make a home by nighttime. Just a good kid, he wasn't that guy. Had a little head, he wasn't that high. Cop gon' claim that it was self-defense. Say he was riding dirty, so the case rinse. Working out of five. Try to stay alive. Making ends meet. Shot him this week. So interesting you say, but so the thing you're referring to with the keto, I believe, is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. He actually gave a TED talk a few years ago where he mentioned he was approached by the federal government to help cure type two diabetes through the keto diet. I believe I'm, I believe I'm correct on that. Someone can fact check me on that. I don't have a fact checker. Uh, and, and he's actually been on um, Joe Rogan a bunch of times. And mm-hmm. I actually, for, uh, I'm not fully keto, but I try to stay fasting and I do as much, um, mm. keto when I can. Um, but I think hearing somebody say like, oh, well, you can lobby something through diet. And then from there, you're like, well, if we're going to get everybody switching to keto, we need also some sort of other kind of production to do that. So if we're going to be doing a higher protein thing. Yeah, who benefits? Right. So now the cattle ranches are, but then that's all been outsourced to 
um, Brazil or wherever. Right, or or big companies like uh, Cargill, where they're they're in the corn business, right? Mm-hmm. And there's just corn mm-hmm. everywhere, and they've bought all the little farms. So there's there's not, so now let's come back to what your dad feels about Bernie in Cuba. There are so many as you go through the domino effect of, well, this sounds like a great thing, curing type two diabetes through a keto diet. Be, and we'll, but why do we have type two diabetes? Because we've been following the food pyramid for the Bingo. last for the last fifty years. And why do we follow the food pyramid? Because two or three doctors were paid off to say that the you, sugar lobby insane. Wait, all right, hold on. There we go. Here we go. I, I'm just trying to get us there. <laughs> so we have, wait, so you saying on the food pyramid, there's a sugar lobby. There's a, a dairy lobby. There is a grain lobby. There is a meat lobby. There is a, right? Oh my God, yes. Tell me about the sugar lobby. All with more money than you can literally imagine. Really? Okay, hit me. Give me the sugar lobby. Let's talk about the lobbies. Let's tell me about the sugar lobby. Oh, well, I had just seen something about how Americans forever were so concerned with eating fat and really what was making us was making us obese was not fat, but white refined sugars in the form of like carbohydrates, stuff like that. The bottom of the food pyramid, as you refer to it. Well, it's funny was I, um, if anybody, anyone hasn't figured out yet that I'm, I'm Irish <laughs> and I grew up on a meat and potatoes heavy <laughs> carbohydrated uh, childhood existence. And shocker, I was actually a really heavy, as my mom said, husky. But looking back, oh, look, <laughs> I was fat. And it wasn't until I actually started cutting out refined sugar, uh, white flour, and, and much to my demise, I was also a baker for many years at a great harvest in Oak Park. So I, I was always constantly eating the bread. So I was extremely heavy. And the minute you cut out those things, you're, and people think that you have multiple fat cells. You actually have a certain amount of fat cells. And these things are inflammatory. So when you eat them, what you're doing is you're basically pumping up your fat cells and they're getting bigger and bigger. So when you see somebody that is obese, their, their diet is inflaming everything that they're eating. Even if it's mm-hmm. not a lot of it, mm-hmm. is inflamed and or their cells are hypersensitive. Now that's not everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I I work with guys that teach tennis that basically they eat apple pie every day and pasta and they're skinny. But it doesn't mean that they're not inflaming their cells. It doesn't mean that there might not be long-term damage sure. done. But when you when you look at the lobbies that are pushing these things, listen, listen uh, we know that dairy um, clogs you up. This, this is we don't need to debate this. Do I eat cheese? Mm-hmm. I love cheese, man. Bring on the gouda. It's so gouda, right? I love all kinds of cheese. Now, are there enzymes in cheese that are good for your stomach and your gut biome? Absolutely. But I try to monitor it. I don't drink milk. It's it's it clogs you up. It's not the thing you want to do. Do I break down and have and melt down and have a cookie or a chocolate? Of course I do. Right, we all do, but but you and I can I can feel it. I'm sure you do too, because I know you're a vegetarian. When I eat something with refined sugar, I can feel my brain light up. Because when you're not eating those things, oh, yeah. and or if I have um, bread, like I rarely eat bread. I'll have you know uh, I, I have a chip problem, but when I eat like actually like white refined bread with gluten, I'm I'm still hungry. Like I'm I don't fill up at all. And I think that we have this food pyramid 
that was lobbied for based on, well, wait a minute, why does, why does milk get three servings a day? I think grains, everybody should eat eight servings of grain. And yeah, doesn't it just seem like a, a consultant driven, like focus grouped nightmare? Like, of course, that's not how we should be eating. We should be eating meals, <laughs> entire meals that incorporate vegetables and fruits and whole grains and, you know, meats and dairies. We should be eating like other cultures eat. We shouldn't be eating like we need to go out as good little consumers and buy the perfect ratio of supermarket goods. Exactly. And we don't need three meals a day. I eat once a day. And this idea about <laughs> trying to cure diabetes. Oh, yeah. No. I, and and but well, this, this idea about lobbying for the different food pyramids and kind of uh, curing diabetes, which it turns out was probably caused by essentially corn subsidies, right? Where no, 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 no. I'm going to correct you. Don't say probably. <laughs> it's, <laughs> let's, let's just call what it is. It's food subsidies. It's, it's corn syrup. And it's, so when, so when you're making, if you, if you, yeah, yeah. And then obviously that's no, that's no way to come up with nutritional standards by having a pissing match with giant corporations. And it's so far from democracy. Like we haven't talked about what actual people want to eat yet, right? <laughs> We're just talking about what these corporations have been able to force down our throats. And market and market. And there there's these elaborate marketing campaigns of milk will do the body good. Um you know, like we, we when you have yeah. this thing constantly in your face, and listen, this has always been that, right? This is not like new. Yeah, 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 yeah. With all our technology, our yeah. number one source of information is advertising. Shocker! It's the same thing it's always <laughs> been, right? Um, yeah, my father's in in marketing. It's been very good to us. I, I'm right, but it's it's with all the technology and everything that we have, and all these things that we can do with science. The thing that still generates everything are YouTube ads, right? They're Facebook no, that's a great ads. Point. Right, we we're the same thing that it's it's marketing. It's um, it's the the apostles marketing Jesus. It's then the church taking that message and switching the marketing campaign and saying, uh, then the crusades start. Right, and the marketing is we're going to take in some pagan stuff like Easter just so we don't lose that market share right now. So sure. we'll use. Um, you know, pagan fertility symbols of eggs. Um, but I know we'll, we'll put that around the resurrection, right? Like, okay. Uh, you know, so again, it's, this is, this is constant thing of marketing. And I feel like we're being marketed right now with, with COVID-19. Like, and I, I hate to be like the conspiracy theorist guy, cause I'm, I am, but I'm not, I have enough common sense, but we have to be smart human beings that when we're told something, we read something that we learn to take the time to do the deep dive. And, you know, I'm impressed by you being a young guy. It sounds like you think about these things and you, you try to do the deep dive, but I, like, I, I'm a liberal person, right? But I'll be honest with you. If you looked at my, my track record of like, I do believe a lot of things Republicans say also, I believe in, and I think there's a lot of like liberal Republicans that are lumped in with being a hardcore Trump supporter, which which also is fine. That's your that's your right in this country to support whoever mm -hmm. you want to support. And do I think Trump's a great president? No. 
do I think everything he's done has been horrible? I don't know because I'm not in the room when it happens, Hamilton, right? I'm not there. Yeah. There's too many things going on. And I think the difference between our president now and the presidents in the past, whether they're Democrat or Republican, they kept it under the table, right? It was there was always something there was always something behind sure, yeah. right. There was always something behind their back. Trump is like your dude, and I'd be honest with you. I think it's just a game. I think he's treating life like a big game, and well, it's go ahead. I think part of that is that that's his like political character. Where I mean, he's he's exposing the hypocrisy, or and to his supporters, right? He's exposing that like mainstream uh, establishment hypocrisy because now anytime I mean, he obviously lies every time he opens his mouth. But it doesn't. It's not a disadvantage for him because anytime you try to bring up his dishonesty or his his track record, they they can just immediately flip to, well, what about the Democrats? Yeah, and I mean, I think that he has exposed some some rifts in the Democratic Party where it, it doesn't it doesn't always look like you know they're on my side. And the Repu- but the Democrats do the same thing to the Republicans, right? So now we, we have yeah, this yeah, thing yeah. where it's, again, this circular conversation, or we call it word salad, where people talk in circles, but we actually don't get anything accomplished. And my, my concern is that are there enough people your age that are doing the deep dive that care or – as you started at the beginning of this interview, you said, I think there's less common ground. And the concern for me is if there's less common ground, where does everybody gal- what, what does everybody galvanize on? If we're all in our little separate spaces. So not, all, not only were we quarantined on our phones, you know, four or five mm-hmm. months ago, now we're actually quarantined on our phones in our little house. And now we're being fed information that's again, mm-hmm. tailored and marketed toward our belief mm-hmm. systems. So what is, what is that going to do then if we can't physically get together and we can't technologically get together? I mean, we're together as far as maybe FaceTiming or doing a Google Hangout, but mm-hmm. is that really making a movement or a people? No, no. And I mean, you joked about, I mean, we kind of joked about this earlier, but as a, if I'm going to take up the label of socialist, right, to me that that's a focus on the community, the social, right? Bringing us together around our common needs. So yeah, it's really hard to find an issue that everyone can kind of rally around, which is, I mean, it's all, that's, that's always been the case and it might be more true now than ever. I thought that I, I think that Medicare for all or a socialized health system is a way that a lot of young people are focused on like delivering a win you know, because we've been we've been so long just getting our asses handed to us by the Republicans. It, it feels like we need to just I, I feel like a Medicare for all system or fighting for that would would symbolize a shift. Uh, I don't know. It, and it that didn't work. Right. Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary. Right. So what's next? I I I, I, I put some of my eggs in that basket, but. Now I have to reevaluate and ask if it's time to move on from that or if it's time to double down on that. But yeah, it's it's tricky and it's never but but it's easy like organizing in person 
that's that's hard even when you're not under quarantine. I mean, it's hard to to get get people together. But is your 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 candidate winning makes you feel better about yourself? But does your candidate winning actually make things better? You know, and I would argue if you asked really poor people, hey, does it matter who's president? They're going to say no. Um, Absolutely not. I live paycheck to paycheck. I'm struggle. I struggle to pay my bills. I'm a tennis pro. I don't make a lot of money. I and I, I write esoteric, you know, folk punk songs that nobody wants to buy. So I'm not rolling in money. So be, be honest with you. Other than something like this pandemic, nothing else is affecting me. My my bills are the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter if Trump's in, if it was Obama, if it's Jimmy Carter. I am completely at the whim of our economic system and our healthcare system. And there's nothing I can do about it, right? Other than say, you know, and when I try to talk to other people about it, a lot of people have this knee-jerk reaction of like, my candidate, my side. And I'm not on anybody's side. You know, I'm, I'm an independent liberal person who believes that government can do some really great things. And I think you need some really smart people in there that are not self-motivated. But this is the catch-22 because people in politics tend to be self-motivated because the people that are not are like, well, I'm not going to do that, right? They're, they're reluctant leaders. But I want to reluctant. Yeah, anyone, I, okay. anyone who wants to be in charge should not be in charge, right? No, at all. I, I think that you, someone has you to say— You want the experts in charge, you know, people with foresight. Yeah, it, our system just really isn't— <laughs> Not I'm on a level with you. It's just not set up incredibly well. I mean, the so, Constitution is is a good a good document from 300 years ago, but it's obviously not working. So is this is this what's going on right now? Then a bellwether is it is it the clarion call that says, "Hey, we need to fix things." And coming out of this, will not just young people, everybody say, "Hey, we need to change some things in the system." And is that going to happen? And I'm anxious to see what's going to happen once we get through this period and we get to the elections and whether it's Trump or whoever. And I think that if a Democrat candidate wins, and I'll be honest with you, at this point, I don't think it's going to happen. But if it did, nor do I. I don't. But regardless, what's the change going to be? And I, and I think one of two things are going to happen here. If nothing happens in status quo, I really, I really, I'm really scared for where this country is going. And I would like to see both sides sit down and say, listen, what are some issues right now we need to fix? What did we learn from this? Not who won, who lost. Can we just sit in a room and figure out how to not let this happen? Because it's putting small businesses out of, uh, out of, out of business. It is jacking up our education system, which I think needs to get jacked up. Uh, I mean, don't get me, that's a whole other thing on our educational system. But the the upside for me is that it needs to get, there needs to be the shaking up of society and this is it. So now we have an opportunity. I think it's been, yeah, I, I, I think that like, this is what's so hard is when you talk about like what the people want versus what the state wants or what the government wants. You mentioned this earlier when you were talking about Cuba and foreign countries, but the same thing applies here too. The electorate has been anti-establishment, populist, 
We elected Obama, who ran as a populist, didn't govern like one, right? Governed as a, a neoliberal, I guess. Uh, then you got Trump, who was the ultimate like FU candidate, shake up the status quo. So the people are there. The people are, the people know that something's got to give. But the way that our system is set up, uh, we're just, I don't know, we don't have the, the electoral energy to get to the polls united around an issue. We're divided around uh, issues to begin with, right? So even though both sides, Democrats and Republicans, or you know, left and right-leaning people, vote for populists, vote for the shakeup, we're not going to get it because we're not actually taking on the powers that be, which I think is obviously corporate greed and wealth inequality. So that's what I would unite around. But then if you say, oh, well, that's too partisan, that's too divisive, we, we can't rally around that. Then to me, I, I don't see how your project goes forward because I don't see how you're able to tackle those problems without dismantling the moneyed system that like perpetuates. And this is esoteric too. This is just me talking out of my ass, but there you go. Well, I'll be honest with you. I, th- I think there is a way to dismantle the system and we keep, and but people have to then make a choice on whether they're going to do research or not. And he, ready? Here's my solution to everything. And here's, yeah. here's why, and I, I love this country. I mean, absolutely love it. Um, I, every day I'm thankful that I was born here. <laughs> Right, as much as we have oh, issues, God. right? If compared, compared to other places, where else at three o'clock in the I morning? I will fucking take it. Oh yeah, I mean, where else can you get a Snickers bar at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning? Right? Come on. Um, and I and and believe me, do I want to do that sometimes? Absolutely. Um, is where we spend our money. If you don't like the way a company does business, and this is where we can galvanize. This is where there could be a movement. It doesn't have to be a musical movement. It doesn't have to be a political move, it can be any movement, is where you spend your money. So if you know that a company like Walmart has, treats their employees poorly, don't shop there. But then you can't say things. pays them a starvation wage that is then subsidized with public benefits like Medicaid and food stamps. Taxpayers pay Walmart workers' wage. Right. So... Don't shop there. The Walton family, yeah, should right. not be getting your money. So, but, so stop. But in a in, but where else are you going to go? Amazon. Uh, 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 uh. But but hold on. Then don't shop at Amazon either. The thing is, do you really need it? And then here we go back to our consumer based society. No, you're right. Of you're right. You're people right. say things like, "Well, where am I get all my food?" Right. So I'll say, <laughs> and, and again, this is this. Everyone's different, and I understand that. But I eat once a day. I fast for 18 to 20 hours. I have a meal between 4 and 7 o'clock at night, and I'm fine. People are like, oh, my God, is that healthy? Is it healthy? I was almost 300 pounds before, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm almost 50, and I feel like yeah, look I, I'm at you. 30. Right? I feel like <laughs> you're I'm— You're a stream being. You're playing tennis every day. Yeah, you're healthy. Right? right? But, but, the te- but I was fat playing tennis when I was eating poorly, right? So it's taken me five, six years to get my act together to get to this point. But again, do I need to be spending, you know, $20 every meal to be eating? No. My meals cost me, I don't know, if, if you added yeah, it up, $5. I mean, I had a salad last night with some, yeah. s- some blueberries and some pecans and some olive oil and a, and a little bit of Parmesan cheese. And I had some um, water and some ch- <laughs> my chip problem. I had my chips and some hummus. Oh, if Americans drank water. 
Oh, I know. Right. But, but again, you're, do we need all of these things? And the answer is no. So if we learned to do with less and really watched where we spent our money, you know, uh, our refrigerators, look at Europe, you're, if you go to Europe, people have yeah. these small refrigerators and they go shopping, you know, for, for a couple days, they don't fill up and stock up. Right. So we have to make, yeah. we have to make financial choices where we spend our money and which companies we're supporting. Absolutely. But and, the way the the way that we're like our, our the capacity that individuals have to make those decisions is limited by the systematic constraints like um, monopoly in healthcare, monopolies in energy production, monopolies in uh, entertainment, right? There are like four companies that own all of the entertainment that we watch. Right. So like you can choose and obviously I advocate shopping local and staying sustainable, but I think, I mean, should there be a consumer movement? Absolutely. Is it sufficient? I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if a consumer movement is, is sufficient to change. You don't think so? Because that's our biggest, no, that's our know. biggest, that's our, like big, that, us, that's our biggest weapon is our money, isn't it? I think it's our labor. Oh, again, expand, expand on that. Marxist. Go for it. Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, and I'm not not the expert, but I mean, basically, the Marxist theory of value is that uh, the capitalist essentially only gets profit by underpaying his his laborers that the, the laborer sells his labor off and it's, it, it's expropriated from him unfairly. And uh, I don't know. You can read Marx if you want, but uh, that's just a little on the, on the theory of value. But, but then you, but you get it. But so you say like, you know, ready. And this is what's really hard also shop, you know, shop local shop small, which I'm all about. I'm all about local music, local beer. I love my beer. And I, can't, it tastes uh, better. It sounds better. It does taste I better. I honestly believe that. Oh, absolutely. Because, it tastes better. Because you share in it. It's a, it's like my my favorite band is it Wussy. Nobody else has heard of them. They're a Cincinnati rock punk band. They're great. Wait, who is Nobody this? Nobody else likes them, but they're called Wussy. Wussy? W-S-S-Y? Yeah. No, I'm gonna ch- I don't know who they are. I'm gonna ch- I'm I'm gonna play them right now. Boom, it's happening.
keep speaking. Go for it. Go to the uh, uh, funeral dress. Um, but I don't know. I do think that like it, there's a value to it that might not show up on a balance sheet, right? The value of your local beer. Does it taste better? Maybe it does, but also it it benefits you because it's benefiting the community that you exist in. And that that has been, I think, so lost. There's there's not a, there's no attention being paid to the community. Well, because those people live there. So if they live there, they're going to be more inclined to take care of the area that they live in, and they're going to be more appreciative um, of of you supporting them. So I'm I'm basically the culture. There's a there is a culture like that. That music sounds good to me because they make subtle references that that I understand it that make me feel special, right? That can't be captured by Walmart or Amazon. It can't be. No, and it has no actually impact on your life because you're not going to walk in and meet Sam it's Walton. Trash. Right, right, well, right, right. Uh, you're you want it. You want something that's. And again, I guess this is why I lean towards smaller mid-tier bands that you can run into and shake their hands and say, hey, man, I really like that song. That really spoke to me. That was great. You, you didn't need to sell it to four million people. I got it. And I love that you took the time to do that. And let me know when your next show is because I'm going to come and see you. And I'm going to support you on yeah. that. And I, and I think that there's, you know, again, I'm going to keep coming back to what you're saying, that there's less common space. The common space should be right where you live. Um you know, I, I I have this song I'm working on called "Boring People Take Trips." Now, now that nobody can travel, you know, but the idea is that boring people take trips without even knowing about where they live. Most people can't tell you who their mayor is. They can't tell you um, who their neighbor is two blocks away. Um, I'm holed up. Yeah, in, a good restaurant downtown or their local club or whatever. Right. Oh, you got to go into Chicago for this great this great restaurant down in Chicago. Wait, down in Chicago, but I I live, you know. 15 miles north of the city and there's somebody just down the block that I really like their food. So I'm going to go there because they live in my neighborhood and that's beneficial to my kids, to the property taxes. And there's so many other payoffs on that. I mean, I'm holed up in my artist space three, four days a week, sometimes sleeping on the couch based on the situation I have in my, at my house. And I go to the Rajou grill at the corner and I know Dino, uh, Dino and Valerie who own it, the brother and sister. And I get my coffee in the morning. And if I'm going to order food at night, I'll get something. But I'm, I could go somewhere else, but I'm not going to. They always say, hey, Sully, how's it going? Um, they, they always take care of me. So I'm going to take my kids there. There's a feeling of family there. And yes, it's a transactional thing. But at the same token, I'm appreciative of them being there for me. And they're appreciative of me and my kids coming in and spending our hard-earned money yeah. there. And I, I think that goes a very long way. I don't get that feeling when I go to Target. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so are people your age, are you an anomaly here? Do your friends talk like this? Do your friends, or are they just completely like, whatever, man, you know? I mean, not only am I like a freak, for liking <laughs> politics. <laughs> I'm, I'm living in a, or until, until quarantine hit, I was living in a bubble on a private university campus in Chicago, North, North Shore, Chicago. So I was already in a bubble, but you know, 
so I, you know, I don't talk to any Republicans. That's basically the answer to your question. Is I, I don't talk to anybody who really fundamentally disagrees with me, which is terrifying because you know from all of the elections that those people are out there. But if you never have the chance to talk to them or to, to share with them, commiserate with them, then it politics kind of just feels impossible or uh, it's really easy to just get defeatist, I think, from inside your bubble. I think that's a good point because, and I, again, I'm going to keep coming back to it over and over again, less common space. If we can't find hit a common... Over and over again. It's so important. Well, I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head is that we've created all these little areas and we can't find something to, to agree on or a, 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 a safe zone where everybody... Well, fuck, can... We can't even fund public schools in this country or protect them from mass, mass violence. If we can't unify around that, what are we? What are we doing? How do we even start? Because you, because then that opens. So again, here we go. Ready? Here's the domino thing. Ready? You want to yep. ha- not have mass shootings, and we need to talk about mental health. And but nobody wants to have that conversation because yep. they want to stere- make something stere- uh, a stereotype, uh, propagate a stereotype. And exactly. but the problem is we need to have that talk because this is a mental his- health issue. Well, we've needed to have this talk for. Forever, they. I mean, mentally ill people always get the short end of the stick. But, but, but we're not doing any yeah, favors by not disgusting. having the right. But we're not doing any favors for them by saying, "Oh well, we can't have this conversation because people that do open up with semi-automatic weapons on children, there is something mentally wrong yeah. with them." And, yeah. you know, I went through. And uh, there's something wrong with the society that produced them. Sure, there's a flaw in that society. Yes, absolutely. That's another conversation. But then, then what does that reflect on? So, what do we do? We're going to keep putting up plated glass, and we're going to have these drills when a shooter comes metal in. metal detectors. And we're we're just going to serious. We're going to put a helmet on everything, right? I mean, at some point, yeah, we're, we're, well, yeah, but but that's it's just, this is the helmet idea that we keep putting helmets on everything because it's going to make us feel safer. And you know, at some point, we're going to have helmets for dinner. You know, so we don't we don't stab ourselves in the head with a spoon, right? We we have to. Yeah, we've created. So, have you read the um, uh, the coddling of the American mind? Mm-hmm. So th- it's a fantastic book, and one of the things that they talk about is that we have this culture of safetyism that creates these mm-hmm. this feeling of microaggressions, where people are are hearing things without actually thinking about it, and then they just react to it. And because they're reacting, they feel like they're justified, but they're not actually hearing yeah, no, what's... Yeah, we talk about this. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think I'm losing you. No, go ahead. Can you say that last part again? Yeah, it was the same thing about the, the, just safetyism and this idea that we have these microaggressions and people are just... They're, because there's not... They're so strong on their belief system and there isn't, going back to again what you said, there isn't that common space to have a conversation. They just react to it. They don't respond. They're, they're, the, the art of debating, yeah. the art of saying, hey, what are all the ramifications of this and how do we find something that actually works for everybody, which is back to being bipartisan. But we've lost that ability also in our social dynamics with our friends and families also there, there seems to always be a win or lose my side, your side. And that is the worst way to move anything forward or to come to any sort of amenable solution that, that benefits the greater good. Yeah. And I mean, just back to like 
nationwide politics. I think this is just in my experience, like campaigning or, you know, you know, door knocking for Sanders is one thing that I've heard from like my young liberal friends all the way up the spectrum is like this idea that American politics kind of operates on like a pendulum where we swing from uh, conservative to liberal or, you know, from first black president, then the swing is to Trump or, you know, whether that swing is from George W. Bush to Obama. But this idea that, well, if we were to nominate Sanders and he were to be successful, what would the, what would the backlash to that be? And I think that's a really compelling argument for why we should kind of stay in the middle. But I, I think that it misses, um, I don't know, just the, the, the actual reasons for, for that trend and that, that pattern. Yeah, it doesn't get at. No, like you I, said the underlying. Yeah, but I think that there's elements of what what somebody like Bernie says that should be taken. But I think there's also arguments from from the Trump side, from the Trump supporters. I, I think that there's again there's there's room for everything. But at a certain point, there's also the thing of like, but we're going to vote for something that gives us mutual destruction. And I don't know if that's the way to go either, right? So we've, and this is a good example of this. This feels like, don't judge me. I'm a big horror movie fan. I love Resident, all the Resident Evil movies. They're like my <laughs> their favorite. is so awesome and ridiculous. But it's this thing of like mutual destruction of this thing is going to jump around and just, it's going to destroy everyone. So we've been given something yeah. now as a, a mild dose of mutual destruction. And saying, listen, we're all tethered together now. How do we figure this out? And if we can't do it, this this society, as we have right now where we stand in this this point in time, is at risk of of fading away pretty quickly. And now is that a good or bad thing? I don't think the universe cares. We care. <laughs> I mean, the universe doesn't care who it's killing, right? It's, it's going to keep going on no, for... No, study the fall of the Roman Republic, right? Right. The Roman Empire. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> so it happens... Or anybody. And then all at once. Right. Or, or the, or, yeah, or literally, the Egyptians. Literally any empire. Look at the Egyptians. For th- they exist for thousands of years. The Mongols. I mean, we have societies that have existed for thousands mm-hmm. of years and then just poof, gone. Yep. And we have... Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about this, this shift where we're kind of in a suicide pact with one another because when you look at this is just my my poli side coming out but when you look at like the past 40 years of congressional elections they've become much more competitive like the balance of power has become uh much more up for grabs than it ever was in times in the past for whatever reason our our political parties weren't as sorted in our in our nation's history as they are right now they had a lot more like cross-cutting ideologies where you could have uh, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, you know, going all the way back to the Civil War and Reconstruction. But now, as the parties have become so ideologically sorted, you get this very zero-sum game where it's, a, it's like a culture team sport, right? I'm on the Democrats team, you're on the Republican team, and any win for them must be a loss for me. And that's, that really is how our leaders or how our legislators are operating. That's the political context they're operating in, a zero-sum game where there's, there, 
there is no opportunity to kind of expand the ideas to policies that would benefit everyone. It's only in the context of, I got to win that next election. I got to, I got to preserve my donations for my next election cycle, right? It's, it's too short-sighted. And that's what companies do too. We can't lose our market share. We need steady growth. We need constant growth. Every, every quarter we need to go up 10, 15, 20, 25%, right? A constant growth doesn't exist. And I think that we, yeah, we have... yeah. Can we just hold on this? Because yeah. I think you're exactly right. The concept of just constant growth on a finite planet, shouldn't that set alarm bells off in your head? That if your economic system promises boundless, uh, boundless profit on a, on, a, on a very, on a world that is just a rock in space, like shouldn't that, shouldn't that set alarm bells off in your head? Yeah, it's a concern. Because, well, that's when I mean, people, the idea that the stock market never goes down, that's insane. I mean, that's, that's insane. Well, I would say that there used to be oil wells in Texas. <laughs> There's no more oil. <laughs> like, and people believe that, like, oh, we'll never run out. And people think that our resources are limitless. And No, the bushes took all that oil. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and I'll, but also, Happy Bush. Right. But, but the other thing is that people think, you know, and I've heard people say like, oh, well, well, science will figure it out for us. Th- th- we have this, this idea that things will always be solved, mm-hmm. that somebody else is going to solve it for us. Somebody else will come up with a solution so I don't have to do anything. And I'll, I'll give you a, a really good example of how people are. And then, and then um, we, can, uh, we can wrap up a little bit. But I also want from you is... Uh, some music that you're listening to. Don't don't. I want to get to this story though, because I think this has to do with what we're talking about about how people are and, and the amount of work it goes into doing something. Many many years ago, I was teaching this woman tennis, and she said, um, "I threw a tennis ball out." She goes, "Aren't you going to recycle that?" And I said, "You can't recycle a tennis ball. They haven't figured it out yet." And she said, "What?" She goes, "Well, that's ridiculous." And she goes, "Well, what about your recycling program at um, the park district?" And I said, well, they recycle most, some of it, but not all of it gets recycled because there's kids and there's things here and, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is what happens. So it's really difficult to implement. And she says, well, that's crazy. I'm going to go on a, I'm going to make that happen. I totally believe in recycling everything. And I was like, great. Well, let me know how it goes. So she comes to class. I don't say anything for a couple months. And finally I said, so how is your, your recycling program going? Oh, well, I gave that up. Do you have any idea how much work it is just to get anything through the boards here? And that was it. Case dropped. And I think that's, you know, one of those things too, where you're going to pontificate and have all this, you know, you're going to have this stance on society and all this, this, this belief system. But then when you're actually asked to do it and it becomes a little bit difficult, people give up. And I feel like, in this day and age, even more than ever, people tend to give up if there's a little bit of resistance. And it's really, and you're criticized if it doesn't make money, you're criticized if it's, you know, you're pursuing a hobby, right? But it has no merit because it doesn't generate enough money. Um, you know, so that, that's one of the things that, that I think that I see that people talk about doing things, but they're not actually spending, hey, this might take you two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, a decade. But if you really believe in it, you could make a change. 
but I don't think people have that wherewithal anymore. I, I don't, I, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe they never had it and only a few get to do it. So the ones that yeah. do it get into office. The ones that do it, that don't let up. You know, I would argue, and again, I want to make this about Trump or anything, but he's pretty consistent, right? Like he's actually exactly who he is, right? So if you're shocked, there's something wrong with you. He's extremely, if you look at his track record all the way back to the 80s, he's exactly who he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at least there's a consistency there. Are you who you are? You know, are you, and again, why do I lean towards punk music, punk bands, or or artists that are a little bit more off the mainstream because I feel like that they're being authentic to who they are as people. And I think I've lost any hope that people that are in politics are being authentic to themselves versus just playing the political game. And that really bothers me. Yeah, that's I mean, my, me too. That's I, my thought on that. I think it's, that electoral politics is just about aesthetics and about like nominating kind of a caricature of, of your politics. But I I'll say that to your point about our capacity to come together and meet like collective challenges, uh, global warming is about to test us on that one. I mean, we are, we're already being tested. I would say that we're already failing the, the test of dealing with uh, uh, climate crisis and carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but the only way to tackle global warming is communally because the entire global economy runs on carbon. Any, anything we, I mean, literally anything we do, anything that gets shipped anywhere, it, it's all producing massive amounts of carbon. And it's not, it's not a, it's not easy. People don't want to transition to greener alternatives. Some cases they're not even available. And the idea of, of shutting, of shutting, well, I would have said, actually, I would have said that the idea of the government shutting down industry by fiat was unimaginable in the context of climate change. But Maybe not. Maybe in the context of COVID-19, I mean, maybe it is just as easy as telling everybody to stay inside from the White House podium. I, I don't know. So one thing you were, when you talk about that, right here, I was just, while you, you were speaking on that, there are 71% of global emissions is caused by 100 companies. Yep. 71%. And here we go. Ready? ExxonMobil, Coal India, Coal Russia, Chevron, Poland Coal, Peabody Energy Company, right? Uh, BHP, Billion Limited, Conoco, right? Here we go. We're going to go through all these companies and all these companies have a what firm for them. Czech Republic coal, right? We just hit every country has something. Uh, mm -hmm. Vistra Energy, Hess Corporation, right? Here we go. And, and, and Southwestern uh, Energy Company, Murphy Oil Company, Noble Energy, 
all these th- these hundred companies. Seventy one percent. Everybody knows this. This isn't. This is this is stuff that's supported. This is true, and we're going to say here. Here's the common good. This is mutual dest- destruction right here for the entire planet, and we have only a hundred companies that are producing this 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 amount of percentage of emissions that is destroying where we all live. Why isn't every, anybody up in arms about this? Isn't this actually a bigger threat than COVID-19? Yeah, yeah. But we don't, yes. but right? But, but nobody seems to get upset about that. But there's that. no, and there's, well, in this country, what do you do? In any developed industrial Western country, if you want to do something about climate change, your options basically look like, you know, an extinction rebellion style kind of balls out militant demonstration. There's just, there's just, there aren't a lot of avenues for pursuing official change because all of those officials have been bought off by those hundred companies. So, so no, right, here we go. So, so we're back. There's not the incentive for it. We're back. There's not the political incentive for it. So how do we create yeah, the we're stuck. So, Okay, so there we go. So so then it doesn't really so then does it matter at all? If it doesn't matter, then what we're the person in office who we elect will change some things on the ground so we can get through our daily lives so it seems a little bit better and we can feel better that our side won or you know some of our our pet projects were pushed through, but mm-hmm. ultimately mm-hmm. if climate change is going to dramatically affect life on this planet, none of that stuff really matters. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're completely right. And I, I think that that's always been true. That Well, n- yeah, now that I want to go kill the myself. presidential race has always been a, yeah. <laughs> now, that, now that there's no hope. <laughs> well, yeah, it's pretty bleak out there. Yeah, I want I want the solution. I want you to think about this. Let's have another conversation some other time. And I want to, I want, I want you to really think about how do we... What are, what are, if you had to pick like three things, three, and it doesn't, I don't mean now, but like three things that are like, listen, these things have to get fixed, right? And like a and, magic wand. Yeah. You know, and, and other countries are going to be like, listen, guys, you know, China, I know you murder people. You know, Putin, I know you, you, you you're, you know, you have people, you got hostages in the, in the, in, in your basement. Um, but we really, but these, those are bad. I'm not saying that they're, they're not bad. But this is a. So we got to prioritize. At this point, yes, there are mm-hmm. things. Th- yes. Right there's the. Um, it's it's like we're dropping a nuclear bomb on our boots on the ground. I was just about to say, nuclear. Right, that's the only other issue I think that that inspires that kind of existential dread. It's nuclear and and global warming or global climate change. But, yeah. No. I, I yes, and I think there's got to be. How do we get those things to a global pandemic, uh, global emissions, pandemics, emissions. And these are international issues. I mean, global issues. So it's really, I think it is really easy just to go for the black pill kind of nihilist, nothing matters, whatever. But I don't know. I guess I'm not there yet, but I can get there pretty quick, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> I think we all can, but we have to, but again, but I think by talking about it and having these conversations, you hope that people will start 
looking more and figuring out what we can do. And I don't want to just talk about it. I want to come up with actually without with actual with actual solutions to what we can do. And my feeling is, you know, again, where you spend your money. So if you know that these hundred companies do that, don't try to find an ulterior uh, to ulterior route that where you spend your money and, and do that. And instead, yeah, of, we certainly shouldn't be publicly subsidizing them to choke us. Right. No, no. And, and again, that doesn't make any sense. Right. You, you don't need to support the Rolling Stones. They have enough money. Support Wussy. Support Wussy because they're trying to do the same thing and maybe on, on, a, on a, a more intimate level than Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And I'm a huge Stones fan, right? Um, so I want to thank you for your time and talking. I want you to think about those th- the, the three things that w- what are the, the main three things that everybody could benefit from on a global scale that we could all do locally that would have that impact? And is that even possible? How do we also find that common space in this, this technological handheld world that we all live in? You know, how do we do that? How do we make that uh, a common space where we have productive dialogue, where things can actually move forward in a, in a, in a positive direction so we don't deal with stuff like this again? thoughts for next time i ain't got no home i'm just a roaming around just a wandering worker i go from town to town and the police make it hard wherever i may go and i ain't got no home in this world anymore Brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world Farming on the shares and always I was poor My crops I lay into the banker's store My wife took down and died up on the cabin floor And I ain't got no home in this world anymore mighty plain to see this world is such a great and a funny place to be oh the gambling man is rich and the working man is poor and i ain't got no home in this world anymore